Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our triune God, we ask you now for help once more. As we come to your word, we ask that you would give hearing to our ears, understanding to our minds, belief and love to our hearts, and obedience to our hands and feet. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we, uh, after three months, return to the Apocalypse of John and our study through the book of Revelation. I thought it would be helpful for all of us, maybe most especially myself, to revisit some of the points that are important for us as we pick up our journey once more through Revelation. Uh, For many of us, uh, we have been out of Revelation for so long that we may have even become detached from it. And so uh, this morning's sermon is intended to reattach us, uh, to catch us up again. In the afternoon, we will be diving right back into Revelation, Revelation chapter 9, which is where we left off. So this morning then, uh, hold on to your seatbelts. I have eight points for you. They will not be uh, long and drawn out, but there will be eight of them. So, number one, this letter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This letter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to use these two words interchangeably, letter, book. So when I say one or the other, I I mean both, if you don't mind. Revelation 1-1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This letter, book, uh, though there are many visions that appear to be drawn from fantasy, is not a fairy tale. Rather, this book, letter, introduces itself as a prophecy of visions that unveil, hence revelation, reveal, that unveil the true story of Christ's victory over all of his enemies and over all of our enemies, and how the bride, the church, will be saved from every foe that opposes her. If, if you get that when we're all done with Revelation, then you've got it. This letter introduces itself, and we could even say that this letter proclaims, declares, that this is the apocalypse of John. Uh, it is the uncovering of John. But it is the unveiling, the the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation or the unfolding of something obscure now revealed. Something unfolded that is 
been relatively obscure that is now revealed in Christ. And this is uh, no moot point. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters, are made known through Christ. Christ has given this revelation. Christ, if you will, has, has pulled back the veil for his people so that we might see all of his plans and purposes. The mysteries of God have been revealed and made known to the people of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that one of the many spiritual blessings that, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, one of the many spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ is that Christ has made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Why has God made known his mysteries? Why has God revealed these things? They are according to his kind intention. God's intention toward you is kindness. That is why this is revealed. It's not fear. It's not sorrow. It's not trouble. God in Christ reveals these things because of, because his intentions are kind. God intends to be kind to you. And so God reveals himself to you. Praise be to God. This letter, this book, while written by the hand of John, does not originate with John. It is, again, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this letter is not only the revelation of Christ, this letter reveals Christ. The letter reveals the power of Christ, the victory of Christ, the authority of Christ, and ultimately, the return of Christ. This is exactly what we have in this letter. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is the all-important theme of this prophecy. If you were to walk away and say, uh, or if someone were to ask, what is revelation? You would say, it is. And you would be right in saying, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is revelation? It is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In fact, all of the scriptures, there is a running theme. From Genesis to Revelation, all of the scriptures is this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, direct prophecies, types and shadows, they are all revealing Christ, every single one of them. All of what the prophets foretold is revealing Christ. All of the acts of God in history are revealing Christ. All that is written by the apostles. And all that is being presently interpreted right now is revealing Christ. It is for the purpose of magnificently revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is not done revealing himself, is he? He is operating even now among us. And there is one final revelation that we are all awaiting. It is the return of Christ. When Christ will be revealed finally in glory. Bursting through the clouds with sounds of trumpet. He will finally, once and for all, reveal himself to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the glory that was given to him by the Father. And all of this is disclosed in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have been given this revelation. Why? So that we might be instructed, encouraged, and, and emboldened to see how the events of history are leading to one final great reality. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Number two. 
the revelation was given by God. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Which God gave him. The first verse not only announces its title, the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it also uh, explains for us the, the chain of transmission by which the revelation has reached the church of the Lord here on earth. Four steps. God gave the revelation to Jesus. Jesus reveals it by sending it to an angel. The angel then communicates that which was given to him by Christ, who received it from God, to John. John then communicates it to the church. I hope that you see that. Here in these opening verses, we are given a description of transmission, which shows us that this kind of process of inspiration, the way by which God gave human authors divine messages. In many of our scriptures, God immediately gave a message to one of His prophets who delivers it to His people. Here, God the Father gave a revelation to Jesus Christ. I think um, John is communicating something very important by saying, not the Son, but saying Jesus Christ. He's speaking to the incarnated Christ, who is our prophet. That Christ then gives this message as the incarnated one to his church for their encouragement and for their strength. The scriptures are clear. God is the author of scripture. You know the verse well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Here we are told that God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ. And then we might immediately ask, isn't Jesus God? Well, we should all answer with a resounding yes. Jesus is God. Why then is there a distinction made between God and Jesus? God gave this to Jesus. In this letter, more than once, we will be presented with the persons of the Trinity on more than one occasion. And whenever we encounter the persons, we must not allow the words of Christ to be far from our minds, which is this. Before Abraham was, I am. Believe me that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me. Christ, throughout His ministry, earthly ministry, is declaring His equality with God. Christ is God. The Scriptures are not saying Christ is not God. Whenever we think of God, we must always think in terms of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Whenever you hear the word God, never exclude Christ from that equation. James Durham in his commentary says, There is but one God, essentially. So there are, so there are three distinct, though. Co-equal, co-existent, and consubstantial, meaning um, in substance equal, persons of that blessed Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although there be but one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. While there are one, they are, while they are one, they are also distinct. That is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Uh, We could say this for each of the persons in their order. This is a message that is to go forth to the seven churches. And God is the sender of that message. And He sends it through the incarnated one, Jesus Christ. He does this so that the words of Christ who spoke in His earthly ministry might be echoed. Christ said, while in His flesh, in our flesh... 
I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. This is what is being echoed in John's, in John's first words. God gave this message to Christ, to our prophet, and Christ, our prophet, then gives this message ultimately to us. Christ says, I know His commandments. I know His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak, just as the Father has told me. Christ would also go on to say, The words that I say, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His work. The same point is made in in Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to this. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, to whom He has also made the world. Christ is our prophet. Christ speaks to us the final word. And you who have ears to hear will hear Him. Christ receives this message because He is the Son of God in human nature. And He receives it directly without mediation. The prophets and apostles received revelation indirectly. But Christ receives this message directly. He is our prophet. And He gives to us this final word. He alone has the right to reveal or to unveil and and disclose what has been disclosed to Him from God. Number three. Revelation has been given to reveal. Revelation 1.1 The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. As we travel through the rest of this letter, and, and I don't foresee any more breaks... There may be one or two left, but as we travel to the rest of the book of Revelation, we must take confidence that when we are faced with things like we will be this afternoon, that are challenging for us. Remember that this letter has not been given to you to confuse you. This letter has not been given to you, and your elders have also not been given to you, (laughs) to make things difficult. Instead, this letter has been given to you, and God has given you a gift of a preacher to make things clear, to clarify things. This letter has not been given to you to frustrate you, but to encourage you that Christ has revealed the plans and purposes of God for His church throughout all the ages. I hope that you heard these three words in in the first three verses. Revelation... Show, communicate, read, and hear. All of these words. The purpose of God in the book of Revelation is not mystery. It's not so that you can open the book and say, it's just shrouded in mystery. Who can understand it? That's not what God says in the first three verses of this book. Right from the get-go, God says, God has given this to you so that you will know, that you will see, that you will hear. The curtain, if you will, has been pulled back. And we have been allowed, as the people of God, with new eyes, new minds, new hearts, we've been allowed to peer into the plans and purposes of God and know them. In this letter, Christ, by His Spirit, removes the veil 
and allows his bride to see all that he has planned for his victory and for ours. Revelation will tell us much about the return of Christ, yet its panorama is broader than that. Whenever we think about Revelation, don't just think it's going to tell us what happens just before Christ returns. And in a sense, that is true. Since this revelation has been given, it has been telling us all the things that are going to take place just before Christ returns. Because Christ will return at any time. But Revelation is giving us the scope of all of history. All that God has done. How all of God, how all of history is revealing Christ and pointing to the return of Christ. And doing so for the church, you his bride, so that we might be encouraged. Not confused, not frustrated, not even irritated, but glad. The purpose of this revelation is to show the bondservants of Christ, first three verses, those things which must soon take place for those who seek to understand by reading and hearing. God promises to make this message clear. And God also promises there's a blessing to those who read this, this, this letter. Some of us say, I won't read Revelation. Well, God has promised a blessing to those who will read Revelation. That, that it will be a blessing to you. Not a curse. And that it will be an encouragement to you. So we do well to read through Revelation. I pray that it might not happen a lot. But there will be times when as we're reading... And I pray... I'm making almost kind of threats about this afternoon. I pray that this afternoon you walk away and you go, it wasn't confusing at all. It was completely clear. But when there are times of confusion and times of maybe uh, things not being as clear as we would like them to be or as God has intended them to be, that you would not be frustrated. That you would know that the first church heard this letter read and they were encouraged. And the church throughout 2,000 years of, ex- of its existence has also read this letter and they have been encouraged and you should be no different. Number four. Revelation has a particular genre. Revelation chapter 1 and 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things that must soon take place. Listen to this. And he sent and communicated it by his angel. To his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The motif of what the prophets saw is um, prevalent in Revelation. Fifty-two times in the book of Revelation, John will use the verb, I saw, and I saw, and I saw. What we are given here is a vision. Of what John saw. Revelation 1.10 I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice. Listen to this. Like the sound of a trumpet saying. Write in a book what you see. Did John turn around and see a trumpet speaking? It was, it was something loud like a trumpet. And John is using an analogy. He's seeing something. But the only way to communicate what he's seeing is to do it by way of analogy, by do it, to do it by way of symbolism. Revelation comes to us as it came to the seven churches in writing. But the writing is painting for us images, pictures that John wants us to interpret 
by what we already know in the scriptures. Revelation, if you like, is a letter or a book of symbols. Symbols in motion. A picture book in motion. And the key themes of this letter is that things are not always as they seem. The key theme is that things are not always as they seem. In terms of symbolism, things are not always as they seem. John hears what sounds like a trumpet, but he turns around and it's not a trumpet. It's a voice. It's a voice that is loud like a trumpet, but it's coming from someone who was not a trumpet. Smyrna appears to be poor, but they're rich. They are opposed by those who claim to be the people of God, but they are really the people of Satan. Sardis has a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. Laodicea thinks of itself as being rich and self-sufficient, but it is destitute and naked. What the world sees as a weak and helpless, hopeless, hunted, poor, defeated uh, church, followers of Christ, actually proved to be the true overcomers who join in the triumph of the Lamb, who was slain, but is shown to be victorious. It was dead, but is now alive. Dennis Johnson says, On the plane of visible history, things are not what they appear. So Revelation symbols make things appear as they are. There are symbols that appear to be something, but Revelation gives us clarity of what they actually are. The letter has a certain style. And we will only be able to see this if we acknowledge at the outset that it's not like other books. It's a book of symbols. It's a book of images. And we must be able to interpret them properly. Revelation draws heavily upon the Old Testament. Daniel and Ezekiel. It draws upon the teachings of Christ. Matter of fact, Revelation could be rightly said is a commentary of all of the Holy Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation. It utilizes it all. Our task is going to be, as we move forward, we're only in chapter 9. We have, I don't know my math, whatever, how many chapters left to go. We're going to need to carry this tool with us as we go forward. This is a book of symbols. And it's going to be our task to rightly interpret what the symbols are intending to communicate. Now, someone may say, well, I thought we were supposed to, don't we take all of Scripture literal? Uh, In chapter 9 today... Uh, There's been much made about um, these locusts that are coming out of the bottomless pit. People have interpreted interpreted it as being a a foreshadow of Apache uh, helicopters, war helicopters that we see today. And it's because they are taking a literal approach to what they think that thing is communicating. But it's not even literal as well. It's something they see as being symbolic that is communicating something literal. We must not take... See, I just confused you. We must not take that kind of approach to the book of Revelation. It's a prophetic vision, not a historical narrative. It's a prophetic vision. Therefore, we must understand these images according to the visions that that they correspond to. What, What is this communicating? I'll just give you right off the bat, because we're not going to do it until next week. The locusts are not referring to something in the future, but they're referring to something in the past. One of the plagues of Egypt, where locusts began to devour the land. We must be careful 
not when we study the scriptures to say literally what does this mean we have images and visions that are communicating to us something symbolic that is true something symbolic that is true so we must interpret well what is symbolizing that is true that's our task we'll get to that today this afternoon uh, here's some examples Jesus is spoken as the one who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, we're not going to see Jesus uh, kind of pull a circus act and pull a sword out of his mouth. Jesus does not actually look like a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. They're symbolizing something of victory. Jesus is not a door. He's the only way to be saved. Jesus is not a rock. But if you trust in Him, you will not be shaken. Jesus is not a cornerstone, literally. But all things are held together by Christ. These are symbols. And they communicate to us something that is true. Our our task is to find out what do they symbolize about the, the thing that is true and hold on to that. All throughout this letter, we will be seeing symbolism and it's dominating dominating this entire letter. Again, it's pointing to something that is true. Uh, Richard Phillips says, Some Christians seek to uphold a high view of Scripture by insisting that it must always be interpreted literally. Don't let that go past your ears. In seeking to uh, have a high view of Scripture, meaning I, I, I hold this Scripture um, to be absolutely true. It is absolutely true. But it must be interpreted properly. When applied to Revelation, this rule breeds only confusion. It is true that John literally literally received the visions recorded in Revelation, but the visions consisted of symbols that must be interpreted, not literally, but symbolically. The point that I just made. This is not to say that what we read here is not communicating real events either. But there are real events that are communicated symbolically. There is a real return of Christ. Someone may say, so then there's no real return of Christ. There is a real return of Christ. Uh, my, my wife, um, bless her heart, said, so then we will not literally hear a trumpet sound. I said, no, I think that one's true. <laughs> I think we will hear a trumpet sound. Because the king has come. There is real persecution. There is a real devil. And there is a real God. And he is really conquered. And he is really enthroned forever. I hope that these things will be even more cemented in your heart and soul as we press forward. Number five. Revelation is only understood in light of the Old Testament. Revelation presents itself as the climax of prophecy. And in order to do this, it draws from all of Scripture, but especially the Old Testament. Revelation 13 there is a composite of, of, of four beasts that emerge from the sea. And we will see that they are four worldly kingdoms. But this is drawn from Daniel chapter 7. The two witnesses in Revelation 11 and the two olive trees are from Zechariah 4. And they are not, just to let you know, they're not Old Testament prophets, um, Elijah and Moses coming back from the dead to preach. They are representative of the church who preaches both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or Moses and John the Baptist, whoever they say it is, that these two symbols, these two trees, is the church who comes and brings both the Old Covenant 
and the preaching of the new covenant to all who have ears to hear. There are a number of references that we will see with God's help. But for now, I pray that you would understand that Revelation is drawing from and alluding to probably everywhere in the Old Testament. And we must be aware of that. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than the New Testament. The entire New Testament. Any New, any New Testament text, Revelation, within its whole, alludes to the Old Testament more than every other book in the New Testament. God is not, uh, well not, see, he's not cutting and pasting Old Testament texts, but he's allude, alluding to them. And we'll see, that's in reference to, he's alluding to, not necessarily cutting and pasting Old Testament texts. The ultimate fact is this, the purpose that God uses Old Testament texts is to communicate a greater reality than what those acts of God were in the Old Testament. Meaning this, the things that we see in the Old Testament, they really occurred. They really produced something God-glorifying. And yet, their meaning had an even greater meaning that is explained in the book of Revelation. That's mind-blowing to me. That it meant what it meant there. Uh, That its impact had its impact there. But its impact was even greater than, than what those people realized at that time. When Israel was crossing the Red Sea... They had no idea that the crossing of the Red Sea and, and, and eventually entering into the promised land had a greater meaning for the church. The church who has their enemy Satan defeated and through Christ enter into the promised land of heaven by faith in Christ alone. Do you see that it meant something when it first happened? But it means even something greater for those who place their faith in Christ. Number six. Revelation is for the church. Uh, Brother Ray, could you please turn the air on? It's it's hot or sticky in here. As we learned uh, in times past, from the moment that Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we have been living in the last days. The last days have been the last days since Christ rose from the grave. In these last days, Christ said, you will have tribulation. Revelation is a historical letter that is firmly grounded in the times in which it is given. It is appropriately placed at the end of the scriptures. Because even though it is a prophetic vision, it is meant to be a final, uh, a kind of final pastoral letter of encouragement to the church throughout all the ages. The church who suffers persecution, the church who suffers tribulation, are encouraged by this last letter to hold fast to Christ. The letter was relevant to its first hearers, seven churches of Asia Minor, and it has been and will be relevant for every church of all ages until Christ returns. To do what? To hold fast to Christ even unto death. Christ gives his encouragement to the saints in Ephesus, that privileged church who would not tolerate evil men and false apostles, that they had held fast, he tells them, to the sound doctrine, but their love for their neighbor grown cold. Persecution had caused them to be insulated, and they strayed from preaching the gospel to the unbeliever, and they were rebuked by Christ. 
They were called to return to Him in their love. Saints of Smyrna suffered tribulation through poverty, through being persecuted by the Jews who claimed to be the true people of God. But in fact, they were proven to be a church of Satan. They were encouraged not to fear, to be faithful unto death. The church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira compromised with false teachers. And this compromise spilled over into the practices of their everyday lives. The church of Sardis slept. And they were called to awake and to be alert. To be prepared for the coming of Christ. The church in Philadelphia remained faithful to the word of the Lord. They held fast to what they had been given. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm. And they were called not to trust in their riches or their resources, but to trust in Christ who gives them sight and eternal life. It's true for all of us, isn't it? The things that were said to them are said to us. The things that were true to them are are true for us. The same warnings are true for us and for the church of all time. The same blessings are also true for us. If we obey, Christ promises that we will have a right to the tree of life in paradise. That, that, That we will not be hurt by the second death. That we will be given hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Christ promises to him who endures that we will be given the morning star, white garments, and that our names will be forever etched into the book of life. Christ Christ promises he who overcomes that he will make him like a pillar in God's temple in the new Jerusalem and that he will give him, him who endures, the right to sit with Christ. Think about the just that. The right to sit with Christ on His throne. How wonderful is that? Richard Phillips says, The apocalypse has an immediate purpose for strengthening the wavering hearts of persecuted believers of the first century. And this book has a message for the church today. Are you persecuted? Are you facing trouble? Then Revelation is for you. Are you finding yourselves at times frustrated, tired, not sure if you will press on? Then Revelation is for you. As we move forward, jumping into the ninth chapter, be encouraged that Revelation is for you. In the midst of difficult days, which we have had, and which are also ahead of us, We've been given hope and a promise of blessing if we hold fast to Christ's word. Hold fast, brothers and sisters, even if it means it will cost you your life. Because the reward in the next life is greater than any reward that we could ever receive from the earth and from the world. Christ gives us something greater. Number seven, Revelation tells us of things that must soon take place. Revelation tells us of things that must soon take place. Revelation 1.1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. We are encouraged once again with the unveiling of God's eternal plan. Revelation has been given to us to show, to unveil that all things at every step in human history have taken place 
because they are a part of God's eternal plan. Everything. Everything that's happened? You mean everything that's taken place? I mean, God says, everything that has taken place has happened because they are all a part of God's eternal plan. And the final revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ which must soon take place. All of these things must take place. All of these things must happen because they are God. They are a part of God's eternal plan. We can rejoice that in spite of difficulty, in spite of trouble, in spite of tribulation, God has decreed all of these things. They are a part of His eternal plan. And we've been given His Spirit so that we can hold fast and not lose hope in times of trouble. And hold fast to this. God has given us all these things and revealed to us these things because these are the things that must soon take place. He says the time is near. The time for the return of Christ, it's at hand. Christ could return and will return at any moment. We must, we must be ready. We must be alert. We must not sleep. We must not slumber. We must not grow tired. Christ has promised that He will return. And it may seem like a long time. But remember, our time is not like God's time. We have been here for Uh, What seems like a long time. But when we are in heaven, that time will never end. Incomparably, what we've experienced will seem short in comparison to what is ours in the future. All these things must soon take place. The time is near. Christ is returning. The glorious appearance of our Christ will happen in a moment, in a moment's time. And all of the cruel oppressors of history will be brought down low. They will be cast into the bottomless pit. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. But the end of all these things is at hand. Therefore be sober-minded. Watch and pray. The church of Philadelphia, Christ declares, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. At the end of this letter, Christ says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy and does all that it commands. Christ is not not tarrying, if you will. He's not slack concerning the promise. Even though from our vantage point it it may seem to be that way. Centuries have elapsed since Christ has promised to return. And yet He has still promised that His return is short. It's coming. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not delaying. His time is near. And it is the time that He has decreed. The time that he has purposed for his return. Let us be ready. Revelation prepares us for that return. Finally, number eight. Revelation declares that victory belongs to God and his Christ. If at the end of this letter, 
and hopefully throughout it all, you are not in some wise celebrating within your soul. If you are not reading this and finding reason for joy, if you are not reading this and finding some type of reason to be alert, some type of reason to be, to be, and I say this in a holy manner, anxiously awaiting His return, then you have not understood this book correctly. We shall see that the church celebrates with the triumphant Lamb in glory. He has triumphed over all of His enemies. And if He triumphs over all of His enemies, then He triumphs over all of our enemies. We shall see the vindication of the martyrs, those who have been put to death. We shall see the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. You will see these things. My son the other day asked me something about um, the new earth. I forget what the context was and what it was, but I was saying to him, for us to imagine that earth, the new earth, is going to be just like this earth, is to have a wrong understanding, essentially, of just how good the new earth is going to be. And you will see it, and you will be a resident there. You will be a citizen. You you are a citizen of the new heavens and of the new earth. If we come to the end of this book and we don't go, wow, I'm a citizen there. I've been allowed entrance there. My my niece, she's stretching. I, I just reminded her. We have um, ancestry from the Philippines, and she was invited to play for the Filipino national team. One one problem, because my grandfather was born in 1910, and they didn't do those things back then. She couldn't find evidence of a birth certificate from my grandfather, who's from the Philippines. So they went through all sorts of documents trying to find some evidence that that he was a citizen so that she too could be a citizen. So that she too could have the benefit of playing for a team that she has uh, ethnic ties to. No paperwork could be found. No no putting on proudly the, the, the Philippines jersey You don't have that problem in Christ. You are covered in the blood of the Lamb. You have been given His seal, His Holy Spirit. You have been adopted as sons and daughters and therefore citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, when the new creation is consummated, It will not be said of you who are in Christ, you have no place here. Instead, you will have a seat at the table as you fellowship with the one who sits at the head of that table, the Lamb of God who was slain on our behalf. You are citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. You will be there in glory. And you will rejoice, not looking around saying, when is all this going, is, is, is this ever going to end? 
the way we do now here on earth? When is this going to end? When will this be over? You will not have that question in glory. It will be our eternal reality that will never, ever, ever end. Heaven is yours through Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, power, or honor, and glory, and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever. It will be our song for eternity. To God be the glory. As we press on in Revelation, hold fast to all of these things. We're going to see and encounter a number of different things. Don't lose sight of these things that we've just said. Let us pray.